Hello. Our reading is going to be from Hebrews chapter 1 to chapter 2, verse 1. If you've got the Church Bible, it's on page 1201. Page 1201. It's Hebrews chapter 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. In speaking of the angels, he says, he makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits, sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Joe and Derek, for that reading and that signing. That was really wonderful to watch. I don't know Makaton, but actually it brought it to life for me. Thank you. That's the first time I think we've done that. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Mike, one of the pastors. And uh, I'll be speaking on that passage. As you've heard, we're doing this new series in this letter. So let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, in your only Son, Jesus Christ, are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We ask now that you would enlighten our minds by your Holy Spirit and grant to us the reverence and humility that we need to understand your truth through that same Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Well, some years ago, there was an, a church. It was just an ordinary church like ours, made up of ordinary people like you and me. And some of them were working and some of them were studying. Some were just starting out in life. Some were raising children. Some were retired. This church had been going for, for quite some time, uh, it had been planted, it had been established, it had grown together, and it had become the kind of beautiful community that God wants in the world. 
as an outpost and a signpost for heaven. That's what churches are. But now it was facing some hard times. A lot of people were struggling. And the kind of stuff that they were facing won't surprise you because it's the same stuff in every generation. It just looks a bit different. Some of them were facing pressure. Their friends, their family, their colleagues were not at all impressed by this Christianity lark, and so they made life difficult for them. Some of them were pressured by other things that life brings. You know, the usual suspects, money worries, children worries, health scares, what's happening to my body. Some of them are just, they'd started out the Christian journey really strong, but now they just weren't sure about it anymore. How do you know it's all true and not we're just believing something that's made up? Especially when so many other people around think that it's a load of nonsense. So they started to wobble on their convictions. And then there were other people in this church who were looking at the Christian life and then looking at the world out there and thinking, you know, the life out there looks a lot more fun. It looks quite nice out there. Maybe I should just go back to my old way of life. And then there were others who were just weary. They were bone-weary and dog-tired. I don't know what bones and dogs have done to deserve that description, but anyway, that's what we say. Bone-weary and dog-tired. I once heard a, a pastor in his 60s speaking to a group, and he sighed and said, Oh, I'm just so tired of myself. <laughs> Maybe you know that feeling. So they faced all this stuff. And then one day they received a letter in the post. It was from a pastor who was some distance away. And they knew him and loved him. And he'd heard about all these things. And so he decided to write to them. And this letter was not a typical letter. Because what he'd actually done was send them his best sermon. So he doesn't muck about it. He gets straight in and send them his best sermon. And this is what he said in three words. You ready? Jesus is better. Jesus is better. Now, I can't tell you where that church was. I'm sorry. And I actually don't know the names of any of the people, and I don't even know the name of the pastor who wrote to them. But I can tell you this. I've got the letter. It's in here. This, the most valuable book that the world affords. We call it the letter to the Hebrews. And it's one of the most extraordinary pieces of writing in the ancient world and in the modern world. It is a privilege, and I don't use that word cheaply, it is a privilege to open this letter to the Hebrews with you and read it together over the next three months. So will you come on the journey? I hope so. Just turn with, with me now right to the back of the book, to the last page. If you've got this church Bible, it's page 1212, page 1212. And if you've got your own Bible, it's chapter 13, right near the end, verse 22. And it says this, Brothers and sisters, I urge you to bear with my word of exhortation. For in fact, I have written to you quite briefly. Isn't that a typical pastor? He thinks he's been really brief. It's one of the longest letters in the New Testament. Some of our groups, maybe all of them, read it out loud this week. It takes about 45 minutes to read Hebrews out loud. And he says, I hope you bear with my word of exhortation, because actually I've been really quite brief. 
don't worry about Sunday lunch. Today's going to be really quite brief. And you're all thinking, oh no, where are we going today? But you can see two things in, in that verse. Firstly, it's a letter I've written to you. And secondly, it is a word of exhortation. In other words, a preach, a sermon, a word. Because the thing that we really need from a pastor when we're dealing with all the stuff in our lives is for him to tell us how Jesus is better than everything else. So let's begin this journey. I've just got two points today. God has spoken, so we should listen. God has spoken, so we should listen. And by the way, this, um, the first of these two points is really much longer than the second one. So if you are wondering about how brief this word of exhortation is going to be, don't worry, I'll get you home in time for lunch. Firstly, God has spoken. Look at verse 1 again. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. The first thing he says is that God has spoken to us. Almighty God has spoken to you in the Bible. That's why it's the most valuable thing this world affords. And actually, it is an amazing thought, isn't it? Here we are, plodding around this small blue planet, off in a far corner of the universe, and apparently the only carbon-based life forms with a soul in the universe. I'm sorry if you believe in UFOs. No one knows how many stars there are because we can't count them. We've got the Hubble Space Telescope, and what they can see is that sometimes things that they thought were just a little star or a little place actually is another whole galaxy. And one reason that we can't count all the stars is also that apparently the universe is expanding, but there's nothing on the other side. Just think about that over Sunday lunch. Here's one quote from... Uh, an astronomer, Kornreich, used a very rough estimate of 10 trillion galaxies in the universe. Multiplying that by the Milky Way's estimated 100 billion stars results in a very large number, one followed by 24 zeros. That is one septillion in the American numbering system and one quadrillion in the European system. I'm so glad they pointed that out. I've always wondered what the difference was between the septillion and the quadrillion. Kornreich emphasized that the number is probably an underestimate because there are more detailed looks at the universe will show even more galaxies. Now, here we are, and most of us here spend most of our lives with our nose not more than six feet above the dirt. I mean, a few of you are quite tall, but most of us, it's just six, less than six feet uh, above the dirt, and, and we make it maybe 80 years, maybe, and then off we pop. Yesterday, we held a memorial service here in the King's Center. A very tragic story to a couple in the community. Both died very close to each other. And uh, we had an amazing service here. And the family gathered and friends gathered. And it was an extraordinary moment, 10 minutes before the start of the service. A family member came up to me very quietly and said that we've got a delicate issue here. Somebody dropped the ashes outside and the box is split. So the ashes are starting to come out. Do you have any sellotape? 
And then another family member looked at me and said, he's coming out. <laughs> Here we are. And you can you'd be reduced to a box about that, that wide and that high. And someone might drop it. Why should God speak to you? Who do we think we are? And yet he has. Many times, God has picked up the phone. And in various ways, says here through the prophets. Now the prophets were the spokesmen, the messengers of God given in the Old Testament. Going back uh, from now three and a half thousand years or so. And the early prophets were people like Moses, Abraham, Elijah, these were great prophets, spokespeople who spoke God's word to people. Then there were the writing prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and those 12 at the end that you can't remember whose names they are. And then there were other people who actually exercised the role of prophets. King David was a prophet as well. He spoke God's word. We'll find that. Hebrews is going to quote David a lot, the Psalms. God spoke many, many ways. And then he says something really big. He says, but in these last days, he's spoken to us by a son. And the comparison between all those prophets and all the wonder of their writing and their speech and this son is like night and day. This son has spoken to us. God has spoken by the son and his name is Jesus And what do we learn about Jesus here? Look at verse 3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Another kind of more modern translation of this. He is the Son, Jesus, is the shining reflection of God's own glory. He shines it out. The precise expression of God's very being is in Jesus. In other words, when you look at Jesus Christ, you saw the very image of God. We've got a worrying thing happening in my wider family at the moment. My cousin, Dale, who's, by all intents and purposes, a fit young man, has, has gone into hospital into intensive care and now is in an induced coma. And they've discovered that he's got Legionnaire's disease. So if you would pray for my cousin, Dale Hampson, this week, please do, that he would recover. Um, somebody put on Facebook, you know, just you know, about Dale and thinking about him, and they put on a load of photographs. And the amazing thing about these photographs is that Dale is the image of my Uncle Phil from 30 years ago. I mean, it's the image of him. You could almost look at it and think, that's a photo of Phil. Now, when you look at Jesus, he's the image of his father. He's the image of God. He is the exact representation of God in the flesh. And the Greek word, I don't normally quote Greek, by the way. My Greek tutor said to us in the first week of, of college, uh, Greek is like your underwear. Never leave home without it on, but there's no glory in showing it off to people. <laughs> I know some of you young lads do like to do that, but I, I'm, I'm a believer in the belt. But I'm going to quote one Greek word because you all know it anyway, and it's the word character. Character. In fact, in the Greek, it is character. (laughs) There you go. You thought it was all Greek to you. Character. Jesus is the character 
of God's being. The exact representation. Now, this word in character was this in Greek, where the character was the t- was the stamp or the type that would be used to print an image onto a coin. Say a coin that they wanted to print the picture of the emperor on it. You get some soft metal or some hot heated metal, and they'd have a hard image, and they would stamp it on, and then you could see the image of the emperor on the coin. And it's a bit like, I've got a coin in my pocket that I really love. You can come and see it afterwards if you want, it's quite big. It is a crown, a British crown that was made in 1965, because that was the year that Winston Churchill died, and they made the Churchill crown. And on the front of it, or the back, I don't know what it is, it's got an amazing image of Winston Churchill. And in fact, if I'd covered up the name Churchill, you'd all have guessed who it was straight away. It's the image of him. He's even got the bulldog jowls, you know. The image of Churchill on that coin. And it's like he's saying, in the past, you know, the emperor used to send out pictures so we knew what he looked like. And he used to send out drawings. So they got an idea. And they were a bit like those pencil sketches that they do in court. You know, they're not allowed to take a photo in the court. So you get these artists who draw the judge, and they draw, the judge is asleep, and they draw the lawyer arguing, and they draw the, con- the, the uh, convicted and all the rest of it. And, they, and now, now there's a new technology, and, and we can take photographs, or we can make, instead of drawings, we now have a coin that shows you what the emperor was like. And every coin is stamped with the image of the emperor. So it's much better than the old thing that we had. You with me? So Jesus Christ is better because now we have seen God in his image bearer. And because Jesus is God, look at verse 2, all this is true. In these last days he's spoken us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he Also, he made the universe. Oh, right. Jesus made it all. All those stars we were thinking about. Jesus Christ was the agent of creation. The Father spoke the word Jesus. The Spirit hovered over the chaos and the darkness, and they created everything that is. The oldest creed in the Christian church starts off, I believe in God, maker of heaven and earth. And what these New Testament writers are telling us is that God made it through Jesus. Jesus Christ made it all, and it was all made for him. We're living in his inheritance. They're trying to build spaceships that can go to Mars. It's Jesus' planet, that one, and all the rest of them. He made it all. It's all for him. And because Jesus is God, verse 3 is true as well. Verse 3 says, The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand. Now look at this. He has accomplished the cleansing that was needed for all our sins, and now he is seated at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. We'll think a bit more about the right hand in a few minutes. But just come back to this. Do we need anything better than Jesus? Do we need anyone bigger than Jesus in our lives? He's bigger and he's better. In 1953, my dad watched the Queen's coronation on a television screen in his own living room in Oldham. 
His parents were early adopters of new technology. In spite of being quite poor, they had bought an expensive TV so they could watch the coronation, and they were the only people in the street who owned a television. So everyone else in the street was in the living room as well. The screen was 12 inches wide, and it was monochrome. But you, so you could see something about the queen being crowned, maybe slightly better than the radio, but you were probably not that great. This year, my dad watched the next coronation in his living room again, and he described the TV screen as infinitely superior. <laughs> in my family, we live off the hand-me-downs. This TV screen is 48 inches wide, flat screen, full color, high definition, smart TV, whatever that is, internet connected, Bluetooth enabled, and digital. Now you can really see the king, Charles III. And Hebrews is saying to us, you can really see the king because you've got Jesus. So don't go back to anything less and don't look for anything more. Why would you? There simply is no comparison. Don't forget who we are dealing with. And therefore he says, verse 4, he, Jesus, became as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Angels were really revered by many Jewish Christians. There was an old tradition that angels had brought the law to Moses. And they're these angelic beings, you know. They were revered. And, and he's saying, friends, there's no comparison. Here is Jesus, as you may have never seen him before. Look. And then he brings out the big guns. Three massive quotations from three very big psalms in the Old Testament. I'm going to go through them quite quickly, but you'll get the, the picture. And, and by the way, in your footnotes there in the Bible, you have where the references of these psalms are, so you can always go and look them up. But in verses 8 to 9, he talks about Psalm 45. And then he looks at Psalm 102 and 110. 45, 102, 110. And he's telling us how all of these things talk about the Lord Jesus. Verses 8 and 9. About the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. This is a breathtaking passage. Psalm 45 is mysterious because it talks about a human king, but then it says, your throne, O God, as if this king is also divine. And nobody could really understand this until Jesus showed up. It talks about the king as if he's God, and because of that, he exercises a godlike rule. He establishes real justice all around the world. The Bible teaches that God longs for justice we should think about that. We know so much, don't we, about injustice all around the world and in our own society. How much do we really want justice? I wonder. God yearns for it. And he will create a world in which injustice and evil has no place. And he will do it through his king. That's the plan. That's the point of Psalm 45, is that all of this will happen through the Messiah, the King. 
Not through angels, their assistance in the process. Second Psalm 102, verse 10. He also says, In the beginning, Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed. But you remain the same, and your years will never end. Another astonishing passage. He builds on the language forever and ever. And it says here there's a time coming when the present world, this old earth and the heavens as we know them, will be rolled up like an old jumper and replaced. I like to keep clothes for a very long time. I'm the only person in my family that does that. But I have to remind them regularly that I have to pay the bills. I had a jumper that I'd had for 20 years. I loved that jumper. I bought it in Kingston when I was in my 20s. It was quite big. Later on, it seemed to have got smaller. <laughs> it was red with some white, white stripes across here. It was, like, it was kind of very 90s, but it still had that vintage look. One time in Manchester, we were, my wife and I were in the loft bedroom up in the eaves, and I got the jumper out of a drawer. And to my horror, we had moths. And I picked it up, and the jumper, the front of it, was completely eaten away. Holes, old, worn out, no use anymore. Even I couldn't hang on to that jumper. I had to part with it. What he's saying here is that the heavens and the earth as we know them will perish and wear out like an old garment. And God will roll them up like a robe and change them. But he remains the same. And his years will never end. You see, God has been preparing the way. He's been announcing in advance his plans for the universe. He gave the law to his people, the Israelites, to show what a world without evil would look like. A just society. He sent messages through his prophets, the messengers, for hundreds of years, like messages in a bottle washing up on the beach, one after another. But now, it says, his plans have reached their climax. There's no more messages because we've got the final word through Jesus, the Messiah. And Jesus Christ himself will be the one who sees God's plan of justice through. He will be the one who brings in the world to come. The point of this psalm is that all this will happen through Jesus. He is going to bring in the new world, the home of righteousness, a new heavens and a new earth where there is no sorrow or mourning and sickness and death. Jesus is going to do it. So we've looked at Psalm 45, Psalm 102, finally Psalm 110. Incredible poem, speaks about how God's king gets enthroned. Here it is in verse um, 13, just a short quote. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? God has said this to a human king. Sit at my right hand, that's the place of power. Until I make all your enemies subdued and under your feet. Now we've seen some of this enthronement in the last couple of weeks, haven't we? A king taking his throne. And Britain is not a super, really a superpower in the world anymore. We're a post-colonial nation. 
We're not one of the big dogs. We haven't been since the Second World War. And our king doesn't really rule. I'm not sure he's a great bloke. He's did a lot of good through charities, but he's not really a king in a meaningful sense. But even so, the British can still put on a pretty good show, can't we? But imagine the king of all the universe. And the real power and the sovereign rule that he exercises is because he's at the right hand of God who sustains and rules all things. Jesus will reign until everything that gets in the way of his purposes of justice and love is defeated. It's a promise. Nothing can stop him. At the cross, Jesus Christ unleashed an unstoppable wave of love and mercy that will fill the whole world as fully as the waters cover the sea and that will then fill the entire universe. Glory. All of this is happening because of Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. So once you see, really see who the Son of God really is and the role he was always intended to play in God's plan, you won't settle for less. Why would you? You won't want to go back to the old way of life, serving some other Lord. You won't want anyone less than Jesus. You won't want anything less than him. Because Jesus is better. I've met people who've traveled in the Himalayas a few times. They all report the same sensation. They see this mightiest mountain range in the world. Their minds are blown and their necks are sore from looking up at the snow-capped mountain peaks. But then they all said the same thing, that at some point they saw something else and it really took their breath away because they suddenly see that behind the mighty mountains there was another mountain that was far bigger and it was Mount Everest. And it was there all along but they hadn't seen it. Much bigger in the background, towering over them all, Mount Everest. Jesus Christ towers above everything and everyone else in all of creation. And this is Jesus as we may have never seen him before. God has spoken. And secondly, and more briefly, we should listen. Shouldn't we? We really should listen now that Jesus has spoken. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard. Why? So that we don't drift away. We should listen because you're in danger. Friends, you're actually in more spiritual danger than you think. All of us are. 1 Corinthians 10 verse 12 says this, Lest anyone thinks he stands, be careful, lest he fall. What might happen to us, according to this? We might drift. We might drift. And drifting is more dangerous than you think because you just don't notice it happening. 30 years ago, I went with three other student friends to the Norfolk Broads, a wonderful stretch of uh, waterlands on the east coast of this country. We hired a boat called a Broads Cruiser. 
There was four bedrooms. No, there was three bedrooms, actually. I had to share with my mate. And uh, we went off boating around the Norfolk Broads. Four clueless students, absolute landlubbers, careering around Norfolk in a boat and mooring the boat in random places. One morning, we woke up late to discover that we were nowhere near the shore. We were out in the open water because somebody hadn't tied up the rope properly. We had drifted overnight, and no one had noticed. It was so gradual, so quiet. And I remember thinking, I wonder how far we could have drifted if no one had noticed. Just had an image of us waking up in the sea, you know? <laughs> like an oil tanker nearby or something. But this is one of the greatest dangers of the Christian life, is drifting. You don't notice because it's so gradual, gradual and quiet. And here's the other thing. There are strong currents under the surface that are always pulling you away, away, away. And so that's why we're in danger of drifting. We won't just stand still. We will actually drift because these currents are there. And they're different at different times of life and they're different for each one of us. There's the current of people who've been hurt by church. They've been hurt by Christians. And so you've, you've hardened your heart. Maybe you know what that feels like. And here's the thing. Churches, Christians will always disappoint us at some point. They, will always, they may well hurt us because they're just as flawed and human as you are. But if you let your heart harden towards the church and towards other Christians, then you find your, your boat is being pulled away. Another current that goes under there, the, the surface, is the pressure that we experience from the world around us all the time. And it's in the air we breathe. It's coming into your, your eyes from your, your phone screen or your iPad screen. Day in, day out, there's pressure from the world all the time pulling you away, away from the world to come and the things unseen. And screaming out to you to live for the here and now and what you can see and touch and taste and feel and buy. There is also the dreadful current of familiarity. We can get so used to things in the Bible. We can get so used to church and preaching and sermons and songs we can get so familiar with it all that we kind of feel we kind of know it all and it all becomes old hat and that is very very dangerous if you're in that spot if you could get over familiar with the Jesus we've been talking about today you're really up the creek without a paddle this particularly happens to kids who've grown up in Christian homes I know because I was one. So I want to speak to you, especially teenagers here, who have grown up in a Christian home and it's all so familiar. Be very careful that you don't drift away. Pay more close attention to it because it, it, once you've lost it, you may not get it, get it back. We can become so familiar. And here, I'm going to poke the bear for a minute here. You know that expression? Just poke the bear. Chesington, King's Church, we're so... We're a very hard-working church. That's a good thing in, in some ways. But you know, one of the currents that can drift you away, funny enough, is being too busy with Christian things. You become so busy with your activities and what you're serving on and the team and the, 
the commitment and I've got to be on the road and I've got to do this and I've got to do that, that actually you haven't actually spent any time with Jesus yourself at all and you find yourself drifting away. And one of the signs of that is that you start moaning about other people. You're moaning about them because they aren't working hard enough. What do they do all day? Start judging another brother or sister. You, get, you got too busy. These currents are so subtle. There's, there's rarely a direct attempt. The devil doesn't make a coup attack, you know, like bringing an army and trying to storm the gates. It's a matter of little by little. So Hebrews says we must pay more, very close attention. Uh, the Screwtape Letters is a book. Some of you have read it. It's an imaginary set of letters from a, a senior devil to a junior devil. And what he's writing to him about is, is how, to, how to ruin the, the, the spiritual life of a young Christian. So it's all about how to tempt him and bring him off course and that sort of thing. And one of the letters says this, Do remember, the only thing that matters is the extent to which you separate the man from the enemy. And the enemy is God. It doesn't matter how small the sins are, provided that the cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and out into the nothing. Murder is no better than cards, if cards will do the trick. Didn't really make him a murderer, just get him obsessed with playing games. Indeed, he says, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts, straight to hell. So friends, I'm going to spend a moment in reflection. Have I drifted? God has spoken in a son. We must listen. Have I drifted? How would you know? Ask someone who loves you. And pay the most careful attention to what you've heard. We're going to spend a couple of moments in reflection now. Lord, if we have drifted, show us. Bring us back. The movement was not from your side. You're always there. Forgive us our sins, which are many. Draw us back into the light, fellowship with your Son. Help us to pay the most careful attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. Amen.